I have a couple times, like, like maybe you need to dig a hole for a tree <laughs> and all you've got is a garden spade. It's like you've got this two foot wide, three feet deep hole you need to dig to put in a tree and, and all you've got available to you is like this little garden spade. I mean, that's an experience in frustration right there. Um, it's like I can already feel the blisters coming and the frustration coming on and the griping and the sweat. And I haven't even, I haven't even like done one little anything yet. Or maybe you've been in this experience where you've got to screw something, unscrew something, and uh, it's, a, it's a Phillips, but all you have is a flathead or, or something like that. Or even worse, there's no screwdriver around and you, you know, use the end of your key. So you're bending slash sort of, you know, ruining your key. Those kinds of uh, situations are an exercise in frustration. Trying to do a job where you don't have the right tools. For the follower of Christ, the job for us is really fairly simple. The job for us as believers is love God, become more like Him, and do what He's called and gifted you to do. I mean, that's, that's the job of our lives. It's fairly simple in a sense. Love God become more like Him and do what He's called and, and gifted you to do. For us at First Christian, uh, that is something we call the 3C life. It's a, it's a larger vision that is not just about our church at large, it's about us as individuals, celebrate God, cultivate growth, communicate the gospel. I mean, that's what it looks like for us corporately. We talk about living the 3C life here because that's our job, that's our vision, that's language for who we are as a congregation at large, but also for us as individuals. That's the process of loving God, becoming more like Him, and doing what He's called for us to do. Celebrate, cultivate, and communicate. And in our church here, in our gathering, our connectedness is about creating an environment where those three C's, celebrate, cultivate, communicate, love God, become more like Him, do what he's gifted and called you to do. Our job here as a congregation is to create an environment where that can happen, where that process works in the lives of us and those who don't yet know the Lord. That's why we talk about making disciple makers. But, but here's, here's the disconnect. This is the, this is the, the, the conflict, the sort of problem. <laughs> when we think about making that happen, we often approach that process. We often try to engage people in that process of uh, personal growth by manipulating them. If you really love Jesus, you would serve more, give more, be here more, invite people more, cuss less, drink less, eat less, smoke less, more, more, more. Less, less, less. Here's the thing. Our tactic in the church, our tactic in the church for people growth, for moving them along this process, very easily sort of devolves into a people manipulation process. Our tactic in the church has often become to manipulate a cultural form of change instead of creating an environment where God's power can affect actual life change. Let me say that again. It's huge for a distinction 
between a congregation, between a group of people who works hard to manipulate people to look and feel like us, make disciples of me, (laughs) as opposed to a group of people that understands the larger purpose and plan of creating an environment where God's actual life change through the Holy Spirit in them can work to become who they're created to be. Our tactic in the church easily devolves into manipulating a form of cultural change instead of creating an environment where God's power can affect actual life change. And listen, all those things that I said about more, 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 less, 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 those are all good things. We do actually want our people to serve more, to be here more, to give more, to invite more people, to drink less, smoke less, eat less, those kinds of things. We, we, that's okay. Those are good things. Those are good things. But manipulating people into that change, into that kind of behavior, is like trying to do a job with the wrong tool. Let's just be frank about this. It's a little easier to manipulate people to look and feel like me than it is to create an environment around people where they become who God wants them to be. There's a big difference between making disciples of you and me and making disciples of Jesus. And it's real easy to manipulate cultural forms of change, which means that a lot of us have tacitly bought into a system and a structure in church ministry, myself included, bought into a system where we're trying to do a job with the wrong kind of tools, trying to change hearts and develop people and make disciples by squeezing people into a cultural form of what good Christians look and act like. That's like trying to do a job with the wrong tool. And listen, if you're being honest with yourselves, me too, you can't even do it for yourself. You can't even do that for yourself. Truth be told. You cannot personally live in increasing victory over sin with sheer human willpower. That will have an end. That will have a bottom to it. There are limits to that for all human people. Besides, it's not even really in Scripture. (laughs) I mean, you, you may think it is, but it's not. You only think it is because... You've been trained to think that that's what Scripture says or that that's how this works. That's how easy it is to give in to manipulating a form of change as opposed to God's power through the Spirit to make change. You you can't even make yourself or someone else act like Jesus. We, We cannot make disciples by merely trying harder. The bottom line is you cannot fight spiritual battle with human strength. You cannot fight spiritual battle with human weaponry. Doing God's work with human-powered tools doesn't work. God's work with human-powered tools doesn't work. We may sometimes think it's working because we can sort of measure forms of, uh, of cultural behavior here and there, external forms, uh, but that's not the heart. It's not the inside And God works from the inside out, through the heart, through the spirit, to make people like him. And we we give in to a process from the outside in, instead of engaging with God's built-in spiritual power through prayer. Because friends, God moves with power when his people pray. 
God moves with power when his people pray. Let me give you a cool little example of this I came across this week. There was a young missionary, uh, brand new, just, just out of training, who was assigned a car for his mission work that, uh, that wouldn't start without a push. So for, <laughs> for two full years, he parked on a hill or left the engine running wherever he went for two full years. It worked wonderfully the whole time in those two years, and he was quite proud of his ingenious little, you know, inexpensive workaround. But he got sick and had to return to the States. So a replacement came, and when this replacement came, he said, well, let, me, let me show you how this car works. You're going to have to park it on a hill or leave it running so that when you get back in, you can actually have a car that, that works. <laughs> well, the new guy took a quick look at the car, and after two minutes of... Uh, looking under the hood, fiddling around a little bit. He connected a wire that had become loose, got behind the wheel, uh, turned the key, and vroom, the car roared to new life. <laughs> the power was there the whole time. Friends, life change is God's work. Life change is God's work. And it requires God's power. It requires God's power. That is why... Paul has written Ephesians 6 to the church at Ephesus. He knows that this work we're involved in is a spiritual battle. And the power is available to us if we avail ourselves of it. And what we need, in simple terms, is a sober understanding of what the job is and what the tools are. And the job is not, the job is not to... Make others look and feel like us so that we have a place of comfort around us. The job is the spiritual battle for souls, our own and others. The job is spiritual war, and the tool that we're going to talk about today especially is prayer. God moves when His people pray. God moves when His people pray. In 1 Kings 18, I read these passages this week in my Bible reading. In 1 Kings 18... Elijah prayed before 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and these empty idols sat lifeless there. These 950 prophets trying to coax these empty idols into life. And God responded in power when uh, Elijah rained, when, when Elijah prayed to God and God rained down fire that consumed the sacrifice and the altar that was soaked in water in Second Kings six, when threatened by the horses and the chariots of the Syrian army, Elisha's servant was freaked out and said, What do we do? <laughs> Elisha said this in sixteen and seventeen, second second Kings six. Do not be afraid, for those who were with us, those who are with us are more than those who were with them. And the servant looked around and thought, What are you talking about? So Elisha prayed, and God responded in power. Verse 17 says, The Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around them. God moves when his people pray. Jump into Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. We're looking at this in three sections here. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, Ephesians 6, 14 to 17, 
and then 18 through 20. You can follow along there in the study notes. In Ephesians 10, uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, we see the truth that to fight spiritual war is something that requires supernatural strength. To fight spiritual war requires supernatural strength. Follow along in verses 10 and following there. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The main command of this whole section happens there at the beginning of verse 10. It says, be strong. This command to be strong sets the tone for the whole passage here, but it comes with a qualifier. It comes with a clarification as to how to be strong. It says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The command there is to be strong, not in self, not in human resources, not in human willpower, not in our stick-to-itiveness. Those all have limits. Those all have ends. If you've lived for any period of time in life, you've experienced them. He says, not in human power, but in the strength of his might, his power. This requires God's might because changing hearts requires God's power. So that's why we have to keep reading. Put on, verse 11, Paul picks up this theme again of put on Christ, put on the new creation, the new self, just like he's been talking about in Ephesians, taking off sin, putting on Christ. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, so you may be able to stand. The main command there in verse 10 is supported by this idea of standing three times throughout after that in the passage. You'll see that here in the coming verses here. This is encouragement to stand. So be strong at the beginning and then three, three times throughout in verses 10, 13, uh, 10, 11, and 13, stand three times throughout. In other words, when you are strong in the Lord, you can stand. You will have the strength to stand if you are strong in the Lord. So be strong at the beginning, stand three times throughout. But again, notice that even these stand things here, are, these stand statements are qualified by the assumption that standing is possible if you have on the armor of God. Otherwise, it's not. Standing is only possible if you have on the armor of God. That's the assumption. That's the clarification, the qualifier for the command there. So he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. And we're called to stand in strength against not one another, not non-Christians, not the privatizing of faith in the world today known as secularism, not political liberals, but keep reading, we're standing against the schemes of the devil. I'm not just saying that to be cute. I'm saying this because... We think the fight is against people who the fight is not against. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's how God's power is revealed. By standing against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, this isn't just making widgets. This is a spiritual battle that requires God's power. You don't defeat sin and make disciples by tweaking sales and managing production margins and watching the bottom line. Paul says we do not wrestle. Notice the sort of competition language there. This is intensity of a battle. We do not wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We do not wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. By the way, the heavenly places is just Paul's way of saying the place where spiritual stuff happens. He's picking up on a long uh, Jewish tradition. The heavenly places is just a way of saying uh, the spiritual world. So here's the deal so far, straight up. 
We are too spiritually weak to defeat sin in and of ourselves. We are too spiritually weak to defeat sin in and of ourselves. How do you think we got in the place of needing Jesus in the first place? We are too spiritually weak to defeat sin without Christ. The devil defeats us spiritually every time without Christ. So we need the armor of God if we're going to do what God has called us to do with our lives, with our giftedness, with the connectedness of this body. In other words, to create a context where he can move in power. That's why we need spiritual armor, to create a context where he can move in power. Because this isn't about building widgets, this is about building people for fruitfulness in God's kingdom, making disciples, followers of Jesus. And this is spiritual war. It's a spiritual battle. Therefore, he says, verse 13, because the job is a big job, it's a spiritual battle that requires tools we don't have unless God works. That's key. It requires tools we don't have unless God works. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to, there's the stand word again, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Today is the evil day. Uh, Paul isn't talking about just some far off someday. He is talking about that as well, being prepared for that. But he is saying the spiritual battle is today. It's, it's now. He's saying, in fact, like in a lot of other places, and in Revelation, if you want to go back to that series, that the end times is now. The war is going on now. Therefore, therefore, take up the armor, armor of God so you'll be able to withstand in the evil day and ha- having done all to stand firm. There's that stand idea Again, in other words, if, if this is spiritual war against a foe you cannot dis- defeat by yourself in your flesh, human power, then you will need spiritual strength to fight. To fight spiritual war requires supernatural strength. So how do we get that strength? <laughs> how do we access what is needed? to empower us for war. We put on the armor of God. Read verses 14 to 17 with me now. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but let's read it and make a few comments here. Ephesians 6, 14 to 17. To fight spiritual war requires spiritual weapons. That's the idea of this whole section here. Let's go ahead and read the passage there. <clears throat> Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now we won't be spending a lot of time here unpacking all of these, uh, but let me just point out a few things. Uh, that are worth noting here in these verses 14 to 17. You may want to sort of write some of these down here. Uh, Paul is drawing this armor language from three key places in Isaiah, one of which speaks in particular about the coming of the Messiah. It's a prophetic messianic passage uh, that talks about uh, Jesus coming. They're in Isaiah 11, 4 and 5. In Isaiah 11, 4 and 5. Isaiah 49, 2. And 52, 7. 
if you want to look those up later. It's cool to see the parallels uh, that Paul is talking about. So when he said, put on Christ, he, he means put on the full armor of God, put on Christ. It's the same idea there. Now, notice that there are six weapons here. Of the six listed in 14 through 17, all are defensive weapons. All are defensive weapons except for one, the last one, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All six of these weapons except for one, so five of the six are defensive except the last one, which is the, Spirit, uh, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This helps us understand two things. Number one, number one, we do not attack Satan. We withstand his attacks. We do not attack Satan. We withstand his attacks. The defeat of Satan has happened on the cross. We believe God has already won that decisive victory. Uh, We live in a time where he's taking down as many as he can with him. And our job is to be in the battle to ensure that God takes as many with him as he can. So our job here is to stand in defense of Satan's attacks, number one. Number two, we do have one offensive task listed here, as we alluded to before, and it's to preach the gospel. That's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Where it says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, the Word there is not the whole Bible, but the Gospel. The Word Paul is referring to here is the Gospel testimony about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners. The whole Bible wasn't even compiled yet as we know it. So when we talk about the Word of God being the whole Bible, Paul can't possibly be referring to the the entirety of Scripture that we know it. He is talking about the Gospel. So we we learn two things from this section. Number one, we, we withstand the attacks of the evil one. That's what it means to have the strength to stand. And secondly, our job is to offensively proclaim the Gospel. Now you may be wondering, before we jump into the next section here, why aren't we unpacking these 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 uh, weapons, these tools of spiritual war. Isn't this what I actually need to have the strength to stand? Well, yes, that is true, but keep reading. And I'll show you why these weapons are not our focus today and why prayer in particular is our focus and perhaps the greater need that helps us unlock everything else in the weaponry. Read 18 to 20 with me right now. 18 through 20, Ephesians 6. He has gone through all the armor. And then he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now notice, and this is key to our emphasis today, Our emphasis in this section that prayer is the power that makes spiritual weapons effective. That's the last of the three blanks there. The last word is effective. Prayer is the power that makes spiritual weapons effective. Notice the weapons listed in 14 through 17 that we just named. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of readiness, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. These are used powerfully through, as Paul says at the end here, the key of prayer. The text of the passage mentions them as important, of course, 
elements of the weaponry, but here in verse 18, they are unlocked as powerful through prayer. They're kept effective. It's like keeping the weaponry sharp through prayer. Weaponry can be used weekly, W-E-A-K-L-Y, without prayer, but they are not used effectively for the sake of the kingdom without prayer. That's why Paul spent so much time here at the end saying, you got the weaponry, keep it sharp. Prayer is the power. Prayer is the power that unlocks the weaponry as effective. Now, reread this passage with me a little bit slowly while, while asking these two questions as we go through. How do we pray and why do we pray? How do we pray and why do we pray? If prayer is the power that makes spiritual weapons effective and God moves in power when his people pray, well then, how do we pray toward that end and why do we pray? And here's what we'll see. There are three alls, A-L-L-S, there are three alls that answer the question of how to pray. And there are two fours, (laughs) F-O-R-S, there are two fours that help us answer the question of why do we pray? I'll say that again because it's a little bit confusing. But for the question of how to pray, there are three alls, A-L-L-S, that we'll look at in the passage. And for the question of why do we pray, there are two fours, F-O-R-S's. And for the mega Bible nerds, it could be three, two, it could be four, it could be all five. There are different ways of looking at this, but this is what we're going with today. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. So the question of how do we pray, the three alls come at the beginning here, all in verse 18. The first one's praying at all times in the Spirit. In other words, whenever, all the time, don't stop, continually. This doesn't mean, by the way, you should just walk around muttering under your breath all the time when somebody, you know, interrupts your prayer, you say, stop, I'm praying, and just keep, go back to muttering. It's, it's not necessarily that. It is, though, it is meant to say that there is no exception as to when you can pray. It is in all circumstances. Because prayer is a mindful attention to the presence of God at all times. Prayer is a mindful attention to the presence of God at all times. And so to say pray at all times in the Spirit is to do it in a way that's according to God's Spirit, God's will, God's purposes, God's plan. His plan of making disciples, bringing people to Himself. So, Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. With all prayer and supplication. We're going to spend a little bit of time here on this little section here. Uh, This is a common way of thinking about different types of prayer. You may know this. ACTS is four models, uh, a model for four kinds of prayer. The first is adoration. The second is confession. The third is thanksgiving. The fourth is supplication, ACTS. Adoration, the first one, adoration is praise for God, who He is and what He's done in our lives. Confession is recognizing our sinfulness and confessing it before a holy and perfect God. This is a a lamenting and even a sorrowful prayer. It is okay to grovel before God. Not before man, before God it is. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving is a third type of prayer. Uh, thanking God, being grateful for His forgiveness and for His work in our lives. And uh, we need to be 
thankful for more than just our food. If you thank God at, at meals and on Sunday mornings when somebody else is praying and that's it, you're not seeing what God has already done in your life. Uh, so there's a lot more to be thankful for. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and the fourth one, supplication. And this is the emphasis here in particular for Paul. I'll prove that in a, just a second here as well. Supplication is humbly asking God to change, to work, to move. That's the emphasis for the prayer here in this passage. Our weaponry is especially for the purpose of supplication here. Paul's emphasis is supplication. It's humbly asking God to change us, to move, to work, to show himself to those who don't know him. When Paul says, with all prayer and supplication... He is saying in all forms and in all ways of talking to God, but he's emphasizing the supplication part. He repeats it later on uh, as another emphasis of that. In other words, he's emphasizing the part of prayer where God moves in power. So pick it up there in verse 18. It says, to that end, keep alert. Here's the third all. With all perseverance, it requires vigilance. It requires attention. Stay awake. Be alert. Pray for God's power like you mean it. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication. Notice the emphasis again on prayer that asks for God to move in power. Uh, It's right there in the text. Making supplication. Now we begin to answer the why question with the two alls. Making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Pray for all the saints, which includes you. So pray for you. Pray for the rest of the saints. And then it says pray also for me. The why here isn't really about the people. (laughs) Take that idea of supplication for all the saints and for me, the larger purpose of the passage, the larger purpose of Ephesians, the larger purpose of the connectedness that he's given to us as the ground for us being a witness. The why isn't really about the people for whom we pray, but for the purpose of God in them always. The purpose is standing in strength against sin for self and others. So that God can work in power in us and through us. Just keep reading. I mean, it says it right there. That words may be given me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of of the gospel, that's the purpose there, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The purpose of our prayer is to see God work in power in us and through us to proclaim the gospel. Now friends, in war, (laughs) uh, hardly any frontline soldiers know much about the rest of the war. That's just, that's just part, of the, part of the fact of the matter. Hardly any frontline soldiers know uh, about what's going on in the rest of the, the campaign. But they at least know that their little parts of the puzzle, that their little skirmishes are part of a larger battle, a larger war that is going on. The generals know the big picture. And believe me, I'm not standing up here saying... I'm the general. I'm just a leader in a little squadron of people. The general is the Lord who knows everything that's going on in this battle. And I know that it's real easy to feel like my everyday little struggles in life can't possibly be about this large-scale spiritual campaign that is going on. But friends, 
if we are prayerful, if we are mindful, if we are in the Word, then our hearts and our eyes will be open to see increasingly what God's doing in that larger picture, which gives us a sense of purpose for our own lives. But otherwise, it's not there if we're not accessing it in a relationship with God through prayer. Because God moves in prayer. God moves in power when His people pray. I want to close by asking you four questions. These are in the study notes there. And just a practical way for you to think about today. Am I praying for God to move in power in my life? Are you asking Him to do heart surgery in those places where you know you cannot fix things? Where, are you, where you perhaps are using the wrong tools? Coming to the end of your ability and sheer willpower. Secondly, am I praying for God to work in the lives of those around me? Do you need to set your heart straight in relationship with your spouse, your kids, your relatives, your co-workers, your friends, fellow believers? The Bible calls all of those people neighbors. Are you praying by name in specific ways for God's work in the lives of other people around you? Thirdly, am I praying for God to move in our church? Am I praying for God to move in our church? Just take Sunday morning worship, for example. Uh, When you get in your car, drive to church, approach the building, are you praying that our service will minister to those who are here today? Is Is that on your radar for the work of God to move in power in the lives of the ministry of this body? Maybe as you walk around these halls and you peek into rooms and you see teachers and kids and students or people studying scriptures, are you you praying for the people you see? And you're in a conversation with somebody on Sunday morning here in worship or in fellowship afterwards. Do, Do you pray for these people? Are you praying for the work of God to move in and among us so that we will make disciple makers? And because emphasizes... And because Paul emphasizes this in the passage, number four, are you praying for your leaders to be wise and to shepherd well? This may sound like I'm throwing it in there selfishly. I I need this badly like we all do. Your leaders have a big job and they need the power of God among them to work. I'm going to close with a little story about Charles Spurgeon, maybe a name some of you know, maybe not. Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher in the 1800s <clears throat> who had a, a megachurch long before megachurches uh, were called that. And he was asked why his preaching was so powerful and held so much power to it because he was really a pretty plain-spoken guy. Um, he said, because my people pray for me, because my people pray for me. As a, as a way of saying, a body of believers where people are praying will be used by God. There was a time when five college students came to hear Spurgeon pray, uh, to hear Spurgeon preach. They came to London and uh, they were a little bit early. They were standing at the door and uh, when the greeter came to open the door, this older gentleman who was the greeter opened the doors and said, hey, want to come in and see our heating plant? 
And these five college students, it was a hot July summer day, and these five college students thought, uh, okay, not really, but we're going to be polite, so yeah, show us. So this older gentleman, the greeter, uh, took them downstairs to this room where he quietly opened the door, and these college students peeked in to see 700 people praying so that God would move in power for the service directly above them that was about to happen. He walked them away and uh, upstairs and said, it was good to meet you boys. By the way, my name is Charles Spurgeon and now you've seen our heating plant. Now I'm no Charles Spurgeon and this ain't a megachurch. But like you, I want to see God move in power in the lives of people. And that's going to require us opening our hearts to the work of God through prayer. And that's when God moves in power. Let's pray, friends.